Welcome to Diana Perkovic's Monday Moment in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to your Monday Moment in 5. I'm your host, Diana Perkovic, and we are in the thick of it. Yes, it is the summer series, the summer book series here with Good Girl Mafia. And I can't even begin to tell you how absolutely thrilled I am to have our next guest joining us. This week's author has appeared on NBC, Fox News Channel, CNN, MSNBC, CBS, and Sirius Radio. She is presented in Kuwait, Ireland, Mexico, and throughout the United States. As an attorney, she has spent 20 years advocating for her clients in the courtroom and has been consistently named one of the top 50 female lawyers in Pennsylvania. Heather Hansen is part of Good Girl Mafia's summer book series and today's guest because she is the author of the the bestseller, The Elegant Warrior, How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself. Now, Publishers Weekly calls this book, quote, a template to achieving personal and career success. Mel Robbins said, quote, extraordinary stories from inside the courtroom with actionable advice to use outside the courtroom. I agree with Mel. I know you're going to love this book. And our next guest, Heather. Hello. Diana, that intro is like everything. I'm going to carry you around in my pocket and ask you to pop out and say that every time I walk into a room. Oh, I'll, I'll go. I'll go because, honey, you are in some rooms, Heather. You get in some rooms. Thank you so much for making time to be part of the show today. I really appreciate it. Totally my pleasure. I love what you're doing at Good Girl Mafia. I love the summer book series. I'm thrilled to be in the same class as these other authors, and I'm just so happy to talk to you. Well, we're going to dive in, but I can't do that without an honorable mention going out to our dear friend, Alexis Antonellis. Love her. I know. She is the best. What a girl's girl. So long story short, Alexis was my color technician for years when I was living in Florida. I would fly to New York because I was on TV, and that's where they would send me to get my hair done. And so Alexis and I had such a wonderful, have a wonderful friend. And Alexis is the one who connected us. So thank you, Alexis. It's she's amazing. And she's been so supportive of the book and my work. And she raves about you. She is really a connector. She is. She is. So thank you, Alexis. I want to begin, Heather, by having you share with us what your definition of an elegant warrior is. What is your definition of an elegant warrior? Well, I love the question, Diana, because that word itself, the word elegant, many people don't recognize, I didn't know, that it comes from the root to choose, just like elect. So I believe that you choose your elegance. You choose what elegance means to you. For some people, that is pearls and diamonds and updos, and for others, that is yoga pants and sneakers. But the idea of an elegant warrior is someone who, once they make that choice, they maintain that choice, even when things get hard, because those are the moments where it's tempting to lose your elegance and to not be true to who you are and what you've chosen to be. And it's in those times that you really need to fall back upon the things that are important to you, the commitments you've made to yourself in order to maintain that elegance. So an elegant warrior is someone who works every day to do that. And most of the time falls on the side of actually succeeding. 
I love that. I love that definition. I think it's a great starting point. And it's one of the things that you learn very quickly about Heather, that she doesn't just talk the talk, she walks the walk. And I want you to... that. Every book I'm putting on the Good Girl Mafia summer book series is a book that I have read and I love. And I want you to go out, get, and also learn from. I want to take a moment and say that I just love the way, Heather, you structured this book. It's one of the reasons why I I want everyone to go out and get it because it's so easy to get a nugget out of each chapter. You have the case study, then you have the prove it. And then you have the summary of the case. It feels, oh, what's the word? Very practical. It feels very practical in in the way that you read it, in the way that you digest it. But most importantly, Heather, it feels practical in the way that women can go then and apply it to their lives. Well, and that's my hope. You know, I hope that when someone's about to start a day that could be tough or a moment that could be tough, they can pick up the book, open up to any given chapter and have that short chapter give them a little bit of insight for that day. I am a voracious reader and I've read books that have done that for me. And my hope was to be able to do that for others. And as a lawyer, it was important to me to have some proof. So at the end of each chapter, the part where it says prove it, that's a psychological study or some sort of research that backs up the the premise that I'm offering in the chapter itself. Well, and and that's another thing I want to point out. Ladies, you're going to love this book also because the the chapters are short. Like you, I'm an avid reader. And and especially being in the middle of the book series, you can only imagine my whole life right now is reading, (laughs) right? It's like, it's all I do. I read this book in one sitting and it was, but it was so digestible. So if you are looking for practical advice, advice that is truly applicable, not these big grandiose concepts that you can't really chunk down and make work in your life. This is the book that's going to change the way you view books and the way that you get the information. So very early on in the book, Heather, you say, quote, elegance feels like one thing. Being a warrior feels like another. When we strive for both, we often miss the mark. Yeah, it's funny. My friend, so I have a a good friend who I met through doing television. You know, I do some legal analysis for TV. So she's also a lawyer. And we were talking about this and she was saying, sometimes you're elegant and sometimes you're the warrior. It's hard to do both. It's hard to maintain your elegance when you're in the middle of a fight or in the middle of a stressful moment. And But those are the moments that really test our mettle to see what, what we're really made of and how committed we are to maintaining that elegance even when things get hard, because it is possible. It takes practice. It takes presence. It takes a good team around you. It takes a sense of humor. It takes um, experience. I mean, it's one of those things that comes with age as well. But in the best case scenario, it is possible. I love the word practice because I think that there's so much talk about nature versus nurture, right? And so I think there's room for both, but I think nurture in many respects takes over. But that for me, Heather, is the good news because those are all the neural pathways that with just a little bit of practice, you actually can change the way that you not just the way you think, and and here's the difference, the way you automatically respond to something, that can change. Absolutely. And I don't know if you're familiar with Sean Aker's work. And once you're done with all these books, he has got some of the best books out there on these topics. And he talks about how the majority of our happiness is not dictated 
by nature or really nurture, but more by the neural pathways that you're creating and the way that you think. It's funny that you say you like the word practice, Diana, because one of the reasons I always loved yoga is because they called it a yoga practice, mm -hmm. not a yoga system or whatever. And we call, we lawyers call the work we do our practice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's not something that you'll ever get perfect. And some days are better than others. But with that practice, you are creating new pathways in your brain. You know, one of the elegant warrior lessons that I found particularly profound, simple, yes, but profound, was the judge who consistently asked, tell me what you want me to know. And I think that this ties back to the whole neural pathways we're talking about. Can you tell us a little bit about the case? Because it's a very well-known case, um, the judge, and how we can incorporate that into our daily lives. Because that that practical application is blew, it blew me away. One simple, simple question. Tell me what you want me to know. Diana, it's so funny because this chapter resonates with everybody. So the judge is Judge Rosemary Aquilina. She is a phenom. For your audience, you will love her. And you're going to be hearing a lot more from her because Reese Witherspoon just signed with her to do some original content for Audible about her life. Mm. So she is just phenomenal. But she sort of rose to more prominence because she was the judge in the Larry Nasser case. Larry Nasser was the gymnast uh, doctor who was accused of molesting all of those young female gymnasts. And at the beginning of the hearing against him in front of Judge Aquilina, something like, and don't quote me on these numbers, but something like 50 women planned on coming forward and very few of them planned on using their names. By the end of that hearing, and I know this because I'm an anchor at the Law and Crime network and I was anchoring, listening and watching this case, over 180 women came forward. And I think it was in large part because of the way Judge Aquilina approached those women. When they came before her to tell their stories, she didn't say, what do I need to know? She didn't say, tell me your story. She didn't say, tell me what happened. She said, tell me what you want me to know. And that changes everything because it makes it about the speaker, not the questioner. Mm. It makes it about what these women, some of them wanted her to know the details. Some of them wanted her to know how it impacted their family. Some of them wanted her to know how it impacted them. And I asked her, I interviewed her for the book and for my podcast, and I asked her, how did you know to ask that question? And it was something that just came naturally to her. But if we can use that question with our friends, with our family, with our children, imagine how it will change our relationships. And that's, that's what was really the huge takeaway for me because, you know, Heather, there's a lot of talk about, you know, women needing to use their voices more, and I, I absolutely agree. The question is sometimes how, right? How do we go about it? Perhaps it's your partner. Maybe it is your boss. Perhaps it's your sister. How, I mean, what a great icebreaker in life to be able to say to someone, what is it that you want me to know? And it's such, you make such a good point, Diana, because I think that for, for those of us who struggle with using our voice or in those moments, I don't, I don't have a huge trouble using my voice. I'm a lawyer. I, I try cases. That's what I'm supposed to do. But there are always moments where we struggle, even if we're good at it and people from the outside think that we're always in control and knowing what to say. And in those moments when you don't know what to say, whether it's a fight with your partner or a first date or talking to your child, having some set 
questions, statements, responses is really helpful. And tell me what you want me to know is a great tool to have in your back pocket when you're about to start a difficult conversation with someone in your life. I agree, especially when that conversation could be, you know, where you find yourself wanting a yes, which brings me to, you know, another big point that, that you talk about uh, in the book. I love, love, love that you encourage women to ask for your yes. Why is it so hard for us, Heather? Please, why? It, well, I think that part of it is part of it is the way that we were conditioned, especially I'm 46 years old, especially people in my generation. I do think that for the younger generations, they're much better at it. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is um, it is difficult to ask because we're afraid of the no. And I think that a big part of life is getting over that fear and just collecting the yeses. The name of that chapter that you're referring to is collect your yeses, but it's also at the same time, you've got to collect your noes. You know, every time that you ask, you are one step closer to the yes, and you have to just keep asking. And that doesn't mean necessarily going back to the same well. I think that sometimes we tend to keep asking for the wrong thing or the wrong person. And I know you've talked about this even in this series that, you know, sometimes a no is not rejection, but redirection. Yes. And you're supposed to go somewhere else. But that doesn't mean to stop asking. Just because you're supposed to stop asking that person to love you the way that you need to, to be loved, for example, doesn't mean that you stop asking people to love you or another person to love you. I think that if we think about it, women are collectors, we're gatherers, we're, we are, that's what we inherently do. And if we think about it that way, that you're just collecting yeses and nos, it takes some of the pressure off and then it makes us more likely to do the ask. How, have you ever had a really difficult no? I'm sure you have. Um, and, oh and, and how, how did you, how have you gotten good at dealing with the disappointment of a no, because I think it's that, that it's not even so much getting the no, it's the emotion surrounding it. And it's that utter disappointment of, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I feel like a fool. Or I knew I was going to get a no. Why do I keep putting myself in this position? How do you deal with it? So one of the hardest parts and also best for growth parts of being a trial lawyer is the losing. Mm. Every loss is a no, you know, it's yeah. the jury is saying no to you very publicly, uh, very loudly, but every loss is a no. And, and I have been fortunate in that I can count my losses on one hand, but those losses, Diana, they stay with you. The thing that you do learn from the losses is that the next day the sun comes up and you have a whole bunch of cases waiting for you at the office. And so you have no choice but to shake it off. You know, Eckhart Tolle um, talks a lot about how animals are able to sort of shake off, if they have a conflict with someone, they shake off that energy, especially he talks about ducks. If they get into a squabble, they like squabble away, then they shake their feathers and then they move on. And I like to think of that when I'm in a situation where the energy feels like it's negative, rejection, how am I gonna deal with this? You have to find a way to shake it off. Now, sometimes that takes longer than others. You know, when it's uh, an end of a relationship, that sometimes can take a long time to shake it off. But when it comes to those life no's that are part of your career and part of going outside your comfort zone, the better and sooner you can learn to shake them off, the more you're going to grow. And I think to that end as well, it, it's embracing the unknown too, 
right? I mean, that's such a big, I, I remember, you know, in, in my life that there was a period where my father died, my marriage ended, and I left my really amazing job of 13 years, um, all in a very, very short period. And to, to say that that changes, or, or rather, I feel like at all at once, Heather, my entire identity was gone. It was just all at once. And so, Along that path of, you know, going one foot in front of the other, there is this energy of you have to embrace it, but also getting used to no's. It's so important. Well, and getting used to the uncertainty. I think you're right about that. I think sometimes we actually would prefer the no over the not yet or the maybe because we just want an answer, you know, and we tend to go towards that which we know, which is sometimes even the negative. So it's, you know, I, I understand completely the idea of losing your identity. You know, I'm in transition. I'm still a practicing trial attorney. I still have my cases. I also have a keynote speaking business. I have the book. And so my identity has changed. And there's definitely temptation to go towards that which is certain and that which is familiar, but the only place that we can grow and become all that we're meant to be, you know, it's more than just growth. It's really becoming that which we're here to become. The only way that that can happen is to let uncertainty be there and not rush to a yes or a no. I love that wisdom, Heather, because if there's nothing else that, that I want to do with Good Girl Mafia, it is I want to encourage and empower women. And I think that encouragement does come before empowerment. I think sometimes we need, especially as women, we need to have more women rally around us. And I think that that goes back to the tagline for Good Girl Mafia, which is it takes a badass to be a good girl and don't forget about other girls. And I think, you know, women like you, Heather, and, and the book that you wrote and coming on the podcast and doing the keynote, this it is a service in in a sense. I mean, this is actually taking trials and, and wins and losses and all of it and putting it out there for women to digest and get something from. Well, and the thing that I always try to remind people of is I don't I don't have it all right either. You know, a lot of times, especially in the courtroom, I, ha I have to look put together. Mm -hmm. I have to maintain that look of I am in complete control and I am the alpha in the room and I do that for my client. But one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I needed it. You know, you teach what you need to learn and you write what you need to read. And so these lessons, I don't pretend anywhere in the book that I've got it all right or that I'm going to get it all right. But I know that I'm working hard to do it. And I know that other women are too. And I know one of the ways that we can do it faster and better is to learn from not necessarily advice. The book isn't even really meant to be advice. It's meant to be, these are my experiences. And if someone can benefit from these experiences and I can benefit from their experiences, then together we can all get better. Well, this is going to be my moment to encourage you right now. If you have a computer around to go to Amazon, that that's where I ordered it. It was there in a day and a half. Um, the Elegant Warrior. I promise you, you are going to get so much wisdom, but then also chunk down into practical advice. And which leads me um, to my next question. In the book, Heather, you wrote, quote, I can... <laughs> The reason why I, I gravitate to this, what can I say? I can't help it. It says in the book, quote, I used to think I wasn't trying if I wasn't exhausted. I had to be spent. 
Now I know that effort doesn't have to be all in and that taking the time to rest gives me the time and space to find things that might just lead to a win. I'd like to uh, address a concept, the, the concept of rest. And it's a concept I think many women struggle with, myself included. I am a work in progress. You know, Sherry and I, Sherry Salata, who was the the guest, the first book, The Beautiful No, we talked about balance and, and how she felt like the word balance was just another construct that we can't live up to. Rest is something, again, I feel really uh, conflicted about still, Heather, to this day. Do you find you still feel conflicted? Absolutely. And then I try to rationalize it by saying, so now that I have my legal, my legal work and my clients who depend upon me, and so they, that always rises to the top of priorities when there's something, a trial going on or a deposition. I have a deposition tomorrow, for example. And then my work with my keynotes and my writing and my podcast, all of that feels like fun. So sometimes, Diana, I will try to rationalize it by saying, well, that's like a vacation mm. because it's legal work. But the truth is, what I know for sure, taking from Sherry and Oprah, what I know for sure is that when I do take that step away, I come back more creative, more practical, with better ideas, with better energy. And I, you know, the story that is part of the chapter that you're talking about is my mentor and my uncle had a heart attack in the courtroom, in part because we didn't rest enough and in the right ways. And I learned that was early. I was young when that happened. And um, it definitely changed the way that I approach trials because I recognized that if I were to have a heart attack in the courtroom, I'm not doing my clients any, any service. And if we aren't at our best selves in our lives, you're not doing your children, your spouse, your partner, your colleagues, your friends, your dogs, your cats, you know, the people around you at the grocery store, you're not serving the way that you're meant to serve if you don't take care of yourself first. And I think that we also have to define what rest means to us as individuals. And I'll give you an example. My sister I have never met someone who can binge watch Netflix quite like her. It is amazing. And that is her rest. She loves it. I can watch something, but I can't do it until four o'clock in the morning. For me, I'd go to, you know, you have your yoga. Pilates for me is, is where I get centered or I'll do, you know, there's other ways, but let's define it for ourselves, right? Well, that's it. It's the same thing as elegance. It's your choice. You choose. You choose what you do. And and so, but but the thing about it is to be sure that you're really choosing. Because I would have told you, oh, the way I choose to rest is by doing more work in a different realm. And that's not truly resting your brain. I mean, there's all kinds of studies that show that when you take a step away, when you come back, you're better off. You're more creative. You work better. And more than, I think, 52 hours a week, you actually have diminishing returns on work. You need to rest. And so I think the important thing is when you're making that choice, not to fool yourself into saying, oh, this kind of work is a rest for me. It's not a true rest. Mm -hmm. So let's find some true rest, not balance, but rest. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I agree with you. I heard that episode and I couldn't agree more. I don't think I've had different people talk to me about it different ways. There's one, um, one example that I liked was uh, someone on toe shoes, 
looks like they're balanced, but in truth, their feet are constantly moving back and forth, back and forth. And I think that that's true. There's no such thing as perfect balance. And if there is, it's only for a second and it's not maintainable. Yes. And so you have to be willing to go back and forth. Now I'm working. Now I'm with my kids. Now I'm with my spouse. Now I'm with myself doing reading and meditating and all the things I need to do and be okay with that. And it's, it's amazing to me how many accomplished women I have on the podcast. And there is a theme of throwing out that term balance. I had Abby Boudreaux on last year, um, and she is a Good Morning America correspondent and a Nightline correspondent. She has children. She's an entrepreneur. And she, she just, she wrote an entire article and just threw out the term balance. She's like, it just doesn't work and it makes me feel worse. And, and it's amazing to me that all of these very accomplished women are saying no to the word balance. Well, and words are so important. They really do have power. You know, Maya Angelou used to um, believe that words could actually become part of her house. And so if someone was using language that she didn't like or speaking in a way that was prejudiced or biased, she would actually ask them to leave because she didn't want those words in her home. And there's all kinds of studies that show the power of the words that we use and how they do create our reality. So the fact that that word balance makes the hair on the back of our neck stand up or for some of us, then it means that it's a word that we shouldn't use. And pick your own word. You know, it, it, there's got to be, um, I spoke to one woman on my podcast who talked about work-life sway as opposed to balance. And oh, that's I what love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, her name, she's a, she's, it's, I think it's a term that she's coined and it's, um, her name's Daryl Appleton. She's a life coach and work-life sway is perfect because you're just swaying back and forth. It feels like a hammock. Brilliant. Oh, I love me a good hammock too. That just seems so <laughs> relaxing. The word trying to find balance, I'm getting all nervous. But when I think of a hammock, I think, wow, it doesn't get any better. You know, Sherry, I found your chapter. Um, uh, there's so many great chapters, but I found your chapter on know when to settle utterly fascinating. And as a lawyer, you deal in wins, losses, and settlements. Who better to lead the way on the discussion of know when to settle? And this goes beyond the courtroom because we are all in one form of negotiation or another daily. That's right. And I think that, you know... Uh, the, uh, many lawyers will say any settlement is a good settlement. See, what people don't understand about the law is, you know, I talked about the heart attack I saw of my mentor in the courtroom, but I've seen two people have heart attacks in the courtroom. Oh, wow. And there's studies that show that the stress of litigation is more stressful than the underlying event that caused it. And so I do believe that when you can look for a win-win, even if that means a settlement, that you should. And I think that part of knowing when to settle is to know what you're actually fighting for. You know, so many times, especially with my clients, they'll get caught up in the emotion of the case and wanting to win and be proven right. But if that comes at the expense of, two weeks of their life and time not to take, I, I represent doctors in medical malpractice cases. So that means time away from their patients, time away from their practice. It means a financial loss in that they're not making any money. It means they're not spending time with their families. And so you have to look at everything and not just the immediate emotion to decide when it's time to perhaps come to some sort of a compromise. And I think compromise is a more, is a better word than settle mm -hmm. when we think like, oh, I don't want to settle. I shouldn't settle. I deserve the best. And we do deserve the best. But a compromise is a lot of times the best. 
And isn't that just so applicable across all platforms of our lives, Heather, marriage, family, work, and even in negotiation with yourself? Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, so many times in the book, I talk about this, like it's the self-talk that is often the hardest for us to do. So knowing when to, cause there's, you know, you've got that voice inside of you that says, don't back down, don't let them win, don't show any weakness. And then the other voice inside of you that says, I need rest. I need to be at peace. I need a resolution. And so it's oftentimes having that conversation within yourself and, and knowing when you're okay to settle first makes it so much easier with other people. It's, and once you overcome your own stuff, you're good. And and I think that's, again, going full circle with the book. Uh, the book is so digestible and there's so many practical ways to apply the wisdom that Heather has amassed over the last, you know, two decades that you really will take away from this book and walk into life with little uh, weapons in your in your arsenal and and how to move along better. Now, this is a big one for me, Heather. Use your voice. Some say women need to find their voice. Others say women need to use their voice more. I say we already have it and we do yep. use it. My argument is just not enough. It should not be stress-inducing every time we have to advocate for ourselves. We shouldn't get... Um, sweat under our armpits when it's time to ask for a raise. We shouldn't get that little bloop in our stomach when it's time to say to the doctor, but no, I don't feel well. I really need you to hear me. So I think that needs to become routine. And your summary of the case, there is is a, a, a section that you wrote, everyone has something to say. And if she doesn't use her singular voice to say it, that thing may never be said. I don't know how many people have considered that. B, our differences are our strengths, and we can maximize the value of our differences when we know them well and use them to our benefit. And C, this is huge, ladies. A shaky voice still wins trials. Even if your voice isn't steady, shake and stammer your way to victory. That's one of my favorite chapters as well. I, I, you know, we think we have to be perfect before we can speak. We think like your examples that you gave, like speaking up to the doctor and asking for a raise. We women think we have to have it all perfect before we can open our mouths. And we don't, you know, it is not the person with the most beautiful voice who wins a trial. It's the person who's prepared and has a good argument and has asked the right questions. And the whole thing about using your, you know, there's so much in that chapter. Your voice, Diana, is as individual to you as your fingerprint. And there's never going to be someone who has the exact same voice as you. So if you don't say what you're meant to say in the way you're meant to say it, it is not hyperbole to say that it will never be said. And that's something to really recognize. You know, if you leave this world without saying the things that you want to say, they will never, ever be said. And your differences, you know, when I give my keynote a lot about tone of voice because it's so important. You, it, and in that chapter, I tell the story about how one of my differences may have actually led to a win. I am the only woman in the courtroom most of the time, often. And oftentimes my voice is sounds different enough that it keeps the jury awake and alert and into the case. So those differences make a huge difference. And there's so many things about a female's voice that we don't even know. A woman's voice grows plants faster than a man's does. Wow. It's, you know, I didn't yeah. know that. 
It's there's a lot of interesting studies on tone of voice and the value of our tone of voice. And we need to own it, even if it shakes, even if it shakes. And, and I, again, this goes back to the notion of earlier practice, talking about practicing these things. It doesn't if it doesn't come naturally, it doesn't mean that you quote, oh, I'm not a good speaker. Oh, no, 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 not me. It, maybe you just haven't practiced it enough. I have 7,000 hours of live and unscripted television broadcast into 100 million homes under my belt. So to say that I've practiced is an understatement. Now, the question is, do I ever still get nervous? It's interesting. I don't necessarily get nervous, but I still have that physical reaction of right before I go on the air, my my heart starts racing. I feel it. I'm used to it, though. That's another way of practicing. I'm used to it. So I know within 30 seconds of being live on the air, it all goes away. But that's practice. And practice really does make perfect in this case, especially when it's something so important like using your voice, Heather. Well, there's two things about what you just said, and that one is Mel Robbins, who is, has become a friend, and as you mentioned, she was nice enough to write a blurb for my book, but I think that she's the one that talks about this. That feeling that you have, Diana, some would call anxiety, you know, that physical feeling, but you can also frame it as excitement. I'm excited to say what I'm going to say. I'm excited to let get this out there, and if you reframe it that way in your mind, it gets back to those neural pathways we talked about earlier. And the other piece that I think is important, and I talk about this in my book, but Abby Wambach, who wrote um, The Wolf Pack, she also talks about this in her book, and that is that if you're nervous to use your voice, if there's an event coming up or something that you're afraid, write down a go-to phrase. So, like, for example, I, there's a chapter in the book about the Me Too movement and a situation that I had in the courtroom where someone spoke to me in a way that I thought was inappropriate. And at one of my book events, one of the women asked me, like, how do you know what to say? And I said the same thing that Abby says in her book in a way, which is to say, have a phrase, have something in your head that you know you're going to say, like, I find that inappropriate. That's not, I'm not, that's not acceptable in my presence. Whatever mo feels most comfortable to you or find some way to use it with humor or whatever. But have a phrase for when you're negotiating. Have a phrase for when someone speaks to you in a sexually harassing manner. And when you have that phrase, then you don't have to search your memory on top of everything else for something to say. You have that fallback phrase that gives you a couple minutes. And how useful is that also to do for yourself? Talk about the neural pathways. Like this conversation, we're, we're just going in another direction, but it's a worthwhile one. Heather, you know, obviously we are of the same mindset and we understand that science. We're not scientists, yeah. but we understand it. I, I find that when I'm talking to women and when they ask me, you know, how do you stay positive? How do you do? And, and I have those responses for me. Yeah. I have those responses for me. We all have negative self-talk. And if you don't think you do, I'm, I'm going to pose this challenge to you. Give yourself 24 hours of being hyper aware of all of the things that you say to yourself when you're not thinking. That's when you realize what your self-talk really is. And so how about coming up with those responses to that really mean voice in your head? How about that, putting that into practice? Because that also affects you when you go to use your voice. Yeah, it's. I think that that is so... Uh, important to remember that you have that inner voice. One of the best tools that I've learned, um, and I wrote a blog about it just a couple of weeks ago, I think 
I'm trying to remember where I read this study, but there's a recent study that shows that when you, you feel kind of dumb, but when you talk about yourself in the third person, it helps you to sort of change that negative self voice. So, you know, if you're in a moment where you're frustrated to say, oh, Heather's feeling angry. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous but the truth is that when you do that you then recognize exactly what you're talking about diana that there is another voice going on that doesn't have to be the one that's in control there's exactly. an exactly i i want to go to to the the i love this i love this book i want to go to the chapter <laughs> where you talk about the phrase fake it till you make it. And that phrase is just part of our global lexicon. I think everyone has said it probably at some point. You, however, say, don't fake it till you make it. Show it till you grow it. Explain to us what you mean by that. So one of the things that's challenging in my cases is I have witnesses and I have doctors that I represent who sometimes are not perfect as far as their, their presentation. So I had one particular doctor who was very gruff. He was um, a little bit, uh, came across as angry. If I had told him, Diana, to act cuddly and sweet and nice, that never would have worked. Fake, people can tell when you're being fake. You know when you're being inauthentic. And the jury would have hated him. But instead, I asked him to show, I knew he cared about his patients like crazy. So I asked him to show that part of him that cared. It didn't have to be saccharine sweet. It didn't have to be smiley and nice. But he had that little piece of caring inside of him. And once he showed it and got the responses from the jury where they leaned forward and gave him the body language he needed, it grew. And I think that is so true for the rest of us. You can't fake um something that is that that is just not you but there is a piece inside of you let's say for example confidence there is something inside of you that is confident in something and when you show that little bit you get the positive feedback from the people around you from the circumstances from the results that you get and then it grows so rather than thinking of ourselves as fake think of what we have that is real and then show that and then the confidence follows and accentuate it and focus on it that's right that's what, I mean, what you focus on grows. That's, that's exactly, the truth of it. Exactly, exactly. I want to ask you, I, I know you have a psychology degree. I'm sure that has helped you tremendously in the courtroom. Um, but I wanted to ask you very quickly, if I could, about your five C's of advocacy, because I know that's something that, that you talk a lot about. Yeah, so when I do my keynotes, one of the things we talk about is how we can be our own best advocates. There is no one better at it than we are. And an advocate is really, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's a champion and a protector. Well, who's going to champion you better than you? And who's going to protect you better than you? So then I talk about the five C's of advocacy. And the first is connection. And we get into the details of how to connect in this world of depersonalization, where everything is phone and video chat and email and the importance of really working to overcome some of the problems with those technologies mm -hmm. and meeting face-to-face -face when we can. So that's the first C, connection. The second C is compassion and the need to really see things from others' perspective and feel things from others' perspective, which gets into empathy, and then to act upon it. So I talk a little bit in that part of my keynotes about this book, Compassionomics, which is about the financial return on compassion in medicine, in business, in all of those places. 
The third C is creativity, and that is the fun part, where you get to use your differences and use your tone of voice and use the way that you see things and work on seeing things differently and, you know, applying your creativity to the way that you advocate for yourself. The fourth is curiosity, which is probably my favorite because asking questions is so powerful. For single women like us, Diana, it's important to note that at, uh, in dating studies, they found that people who ask the most questions get the most dates. So it's, we think sometimes that asking questions makes us look dumb, and it doesn't. People think you're smarter, they think you're more attractive, and they think you're more compelling when you ask questions. So that's the fourth C. And then the last C is so important when it comes to your self-talk and talk to others, and that's credibility. Because we talk about trusting ourselves and others, but trust takes time to build, and it starts with credibility. And you have to be credible with others and also with yourself. You know, if you tell yourself you're going to do something, you need to do it or you need to own it. And if you set an expectation, you need to meet it or you need to own it. And I can't win my cases if I don't have credibility with the jury. So it's a key part of advocacy that I work with my clients on. And it goes full circle to use your voice, which at the end of the day is such a big part of this book. Because I find at, when you when you just chunk it all down and you net it out, it it this book is so empowering because it encourages women and again gives practical ways that we can build ourselves up, put ourselves out there and ultimately use our voices. That's right. That's right. And the more that we do, the more others will. If you I just had a talk with a with a client about this and she is reluctant to use her voice and she's reluctant to quote unquote sell herself. And if you think of it in terms for those women who are used to caring more for others than they do for themselves and working more for others than they do for themselves, then think of it this way. The more you use your voice, the more that you're giving other women the example so that they will use it too. So you're doing a service to our daughters and our nieces and our friends and our uh, acquaintances to show them that they can do the same. I want to close out the podcast with your take on closing, actually. Um, and your chapter, Close with Respect, yeah, I, you know, it's it, my world is a it's an unusual situation in a trial because it's a zero sum game. You know, there's very few jobs where there's a winner and a loser. Politics is one, sports is another, and then trials. And it's public and you have an adversary. But one of the things that was always really important to me is if I have to take away someone's story in front of the jury so that I can win, I don't ever want to take away their dignity. And I always want to be able to say that even in that room, if I had to challenge the story, I never challenged the opponent's dignity. I never challenged their, their respect for themselves and for me and my respect for them. And it's something that is really important, no matter what it is that you're doing, that at the end of the day, you're closing with respect and honoring the dignity of everyone in that room. And in so doing, you're honoring your own dignity. Well, that's right, because you can't look yourself in the mirror if you've taken someone else's. You know, and that's that's the definition of karma. Well, before we say goodbye, because I really don't want to. <laughs> I really don't. I just enjoy talking to you so much. You are also the host of the Elegant Warrior podcast. And since this is a podcast, I want to give you the opportunity to plug yours and tell everybody about it, please. Well, I love... I love when other women use their voices. So I'm having you on the podcast, which I can't wait to turn the tables on you. Oh, gosh. Yay. <laughs> I love 
talking to women and hearing what they have to say. So for example, Judge Aquilina, the judge who said, tell me what you want me to know in that trial. She was one of my, my guests, which just was amazing, an amazing opportunity for me. Kelly Rutherford, who is a friend of mine who was in Gilmore Girl, Gossip Girl. Yes. I, <laughs> I can't tell you. I, I, during the last election, I was tweeting away at everybody who would listen when they were talking about immigration I'm like please somebody ask about Kelly Rutherford why are we like how I'm not going to go off on a tangent but I am a huge supporter of hers I had no idea that that you were friends yeah she's a friend of mine she's lovely and she was a guest on the podcast I love and her. she her approach towards, I know with Sherry, you talked about Abraham Hicks and, yes. and that attitude of manifestation, and she has completely owned that and found a way to make it work in a very difficult situation. Yeah. But I've interviewed um, just so many interesting women from all walks of life, uh, people who are chief of communications for Gary Vee, Kara Brookins, who is a fabulous author who wrote a book about building a house from the ground up by watching YouTube after she had been abused by her husband. So it's just, I mean, as you know, podcast, the, one of the great things is you get this opportunity to talk to women that you otherwise wouldn't. And so it's a complete pleasure for me. And it has been such a pleasure for me to have you on the show today, Heather. I know how busy you are, and I can't thank you enough. I, I loved the book, and you are just, you're a delight. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for having me, Diana, and I'm so excited about our new friendship. I know, me too, and I can't thank you enough. So I want to, again, tell all of you, it is called The Elegant Warrior I bought mine on Amazon. I promise you it's one of those really delightful, and I use the word delightful with intention. It's the book that will leave you feeling good, leave you feeling as if you have some actionable tools to take out with you, and it's just such an easy read. I don't know how Heather managed to do both, get so much information in there, and you don't feel like, oh, this chapter's like 100 pages. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. So thank you again, Heather, and for all of you who have been part of the Summer Book Series, there are more books still to come. Heather Hansen, she says, facts tell, stories sell, but advocacy wins. You can win more sales, more attention, more loyalty, and more clients. Heather Hansen's book, The Elegant Warrior, will show you how. Diana's out. See you next week. Oh.